I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 21. And I want to read the first 14 verses. John 21, verse 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. See, Jesus didn't need them to bring fish. He had the fish already there, along with bread on the beach for breakfast. But he said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I know he appeared to the women and there were other appearances, but to the disciples, to the, to the twelve, or to the group that represented the number of the twelve. First ten, then eleven, and then, then seven in this instance. Third time that he revealed himself to this grouping of people. May the Lord be pleased to bless the reading of his word. Now this morning we begin what I plan to be three messages that will complete our studies in the Gospel of John. This morning we'll be focusing upon uh, these first 14 verses and the theme that's in your bulletin, the great catch of fish. Next week we're going to look at the 15th verse through the 17th verse where Jesus uh, has his reckoning with Peter. Just as he had his reckoning with Thomas in chapter 20, so there's a reckoning that he has still to do with Peter, matters pertaining to Peter's own uh, character and his own need to, um, well, just have Jesus speak words to him that will prepare him for the ministry that uh, is before him 
Then finally, we'll take up the final message of, of the book, uh, from verse 18 to the end of the book, um, dealing with really the fate of these disciples, at least Peter and John, and then the conclusion of the book in verse 24 and 25. Now, there's a great deal of discussion among scholars, among commentators, about this 21st chapter. Because you see, to all appearances, we would have thought the book had been brought to a fitting conclusion at the end of chapter 20. John's statement about the purpose of the book. The fact that there's a 21st chapter at all uh, seems to be a puzzle. What is it for? Why is it here? And speculation reigns as to whether maybe it was a later addition to the book. Not actually written by John, but somebody later came and thought that this was a nice story to tell, that they wove out of a certain uh, materials in the Bible and came up with this. But you see, there's simply no evidence of that having taken place. There's no copy of the book of John that does not contain chapter 21. We also find that the very vocabulary and language that's used is very consistent with the rest of the book. And in addition, uh, it ends with the beloved disciple who makes frequent appearances in the early chapter, putting his own testimony as an eyewitness uh, to this final chapter and this final word in the book giving his own verification for the certainty and the truthfulness of his account. So it belongs. It's part of the book. But what part does it play? What's the need for this chapter? That's the first thing we want to look at this morning. The need for chapter 21. Then I want to say something about the narrative we find in the first 14 verses. So we're going to look at need first, need for the chapter, narrative that's contained in the first 14 verses. And then I want to focus in a bit on this weirdness that comes with this number of 153. I'm sorry I use the word weirdness about anything that's in the Bible, but it doesn't rather strange. A number like 153 making its appearance in a narrative? Why? What's it all about? Well, we'll say something about that as well. And I really think that though... We can read this passage without real understanding anything at all about 153. It's just a number, or it's just a, maybe John would have counted 153, and now he's telling us it's an accurate account, and we can trust him, because he really went and he counted the fish, made sure that he was going to give an accurate report of the number, 153, and he puts it into the text. Well, okay, you want to think that? That's fine. I think there's another explanation, and I'll present it to you this morning. So, um... Let's begin. What place does this final chapter play in the gospel? Why does it, from all appearances, seem that there are two endings to the book? I think we can gather from the text itself that the writer is aware that uh, this might be a problem to people who read this. He's fully aware that there are two endings. In fact, he seems to underscore his awareness of two endings by a very interesting thing. I checked it out this morning and I found that it was true. I actually sat with my Greek Bible and I counted up the words of the ending of chapter 20 and I counted up the words in the Greek of the ending of chapter 21. And what I read is true. Can't, can't escape this, folks. 43 words in each of the endings. 43 words 
You can give them my Greek Bible, you can count them for yourself. And I don't think that's coincidental. What, what's the chances? You can write two endings to two different chapters, and you just so happen to write the same amount of words. You rather think it's not coincidental. John intends to draw attention to the reader. That he's given us two endings. He gives us two endings with 43 words each, so that we would see that there's symmetry, there's correspondence between these two endings. They correspond to one another as they point to two similar things that are different, but they're similar. See, the ending of chapter 20 refers to the ending of John's account of the ministry of Jesus. Remember, he said, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. That's his ministry on earth, his public ministry, with his people. The things he did in the account that John gives. He says, many other signs he did in the presence of his disciples. These I give to you, the seven, he records, the seven signs of John's gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you would have life in his name. And so, that's coming to the end of his account about Jesus. It ends with his resurrection, his appearance to his disciples. Yeah, but Jesus appears in chapter 21. Yes, he does. But he appears in chapter 21 in a different way. Now the focus is not so much upon Jesus, his being the Christ, the Son of God, whom we are to believe upon to have life in his name. John says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness of these things. Not here there is there seven signs Jesus did in his, in his public ministry, but he's giving words that address the subject of the future ministry, mission, and the land of life even of two of his disciples. This is addressing what his disciples have been left in the world to do. Remember in chapter 20, he said, As the Father sends me, sent me, even so I send you. This is an addition that now focuses upon the future work and mission and ministry and even the death, at least two, of these disciples. It's forward-looking. It's the things that are to come. You know, a gospel is an account of the life of Jesus. An account of the apostles, generally speaking, is called an Acts or the book of Acts. We have one of them that's an inspired account. But there's all kinds of other documents that people wrote in the early centuries about the acts that others did. The acts of the followers of Jesus. The acts of the apostles. John doesn't give us two volumes like Luke does. Luke gives us his gospel about Jesus. He gives us the acts and he says in the first chapter that the first volume, the gospel of Luke, were about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the second book, the book of Acts, you know what that is? That's the volume of the things that Jesus continued to do and to teach. I think there's some indication in, chap in the ending is that that's what John is telling us. I'm not writing a second volume, but I'm going to give you one chapter. And one chapter that's going to point you in the direction of the things that are yet to come. Or what these apostles are yet to do. Because he goes on and he says, now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain all the books that would be written. And he's not really speaking of the past events necessarily. He's speaking about the things that follow his resurrection. He's speaking about the things that Jesus continues to do. If you were to compile an account of all of what Jesus has done on church history, 
you really would run out of space to say that all that needs to be said. I know there's a bit of hyperbole to that, but I also know that there's an immense amount of reality to that as well. That Jesus acts among his people, through his people, building his church, nurturing his church, bringing the spread of the gospel into the world. That's an immense amount of data. And John says, now, I'm giving you a bit of it, and I'm telling you there's more to come. There's more to come. So I think chapter 21 has this forward-looking perspective of the things that Jesus continued to do and to teach. John doesn't write an additional book of Acts, but he gives us an additional chapter, which we call an epilogue, anticipating the future labors and the future fate of these disciples. You want to know something else? I mean, sometimes things get weird in Bible study. And I apologize that sometimes I'm the guy that has to tell you about the stranger parts, because then you think I'm strange because I'm telling it to you. But I didn't put it in the Bible. It's really here. And that is, we have a prologue to John's Gospel. The first 18 verses of chapter 1, where he begins his account of Jesus. And he tells us in the account, in those first 18 verses, of the very things he's now going to open up in the rest of the Gospel, the 20 chapters that fall. And when you count the words of those 18 verses, I didn't write down the number, I'm sorry, but you can count them up. And I'm sorry, I'm wrong. It's not the words, it's the syllables of the words. The different parts of the words as you count them out in the Greek. And people did that. People are very conscious of in, in a written language that uh, you know you analyze things, you look at things, you look at things like syllables, you look at ways things are put together. But you come up with the same exact number of chapter, the words of chapter 21. Again, it's not strange numerology because it's not changing any doctrine. I'm not saying oh, there's a new doctrine to be found here. I'm just making an observation that people have made. That there is something in John's intention to tell us this symmetry, this balance, this correspondence. I'm going to start to tell you about Jesus, and then I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and now with the conclusion of the life of Jesus, there's more to be told. And now there's more to be told. There's this epilogue. So the prologue and the epilogue correspond in the same number of syllables and words found in each of the chapters. What can I tell you? It's just there. But I think it's significant just to see the balance between these things. I've told you something about why it's here, why the need for it is. Now I want to tell you something about this narrative that we're given in the first 14 verses. Now at the end of verse 14, it says, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so you have the first account of the visit he made in the upper room, of the visiting or meeting with the ten, he was in their midst, and then a week later, appearing to them along with Thomas, and now there is this appearance not any longer in Jerusalem, not any longer in the upper room. Now it's in Galilee. It's by the Sea of Tiberias, also called the Sea of Galilee. Matthew also ends his gospel with an appearance of Jesus in Galilee on a mountain where he gave them the words of the Great Commission. It's clear the disciples returned to Galilee. It's clear that Jesus told them to go to Galilee. It's that Jesus told them he would meet with them in Galilee. Now we're not told exactly at one point this appearance came about. We know it was 40 days Jesus continued to be with his disciples. 
prior to his ascension. And so we're just told that this event took place. Not when, not the timing, but that it was an appearance the third time. Again, there was representatives of the apostles that were present. We're told there were seven in number. Simon Peter, of course, is the leading one, and his name comes first. And Thomas, I told you last week, I think it's because Jesus has a reckoning with them both. Chapter 20 tells you how he reckons with Thomas. Chapter 21, we'll see next week, he reckons with Peter. He comes next. And then we're told there was Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee. So he's in Galilee, Nathaniel's there, that's where he's come, he's from. Makes sense. He's 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 mentioned. Then there are the sons of Zebedee. Those are the fishermen. Also called from their fishing fishing nets in uh, Luke's gospel and in Mark and in Matthew to be fishers of men. And so they also are with Peter. And then there's two unidentified disciples as well. So seven in number. Simon Peter announces to them, he plans to go fishing. Now he's a fisherman by trade. And we ought to ask the question, was he taking up his trade again? Did he go back to Galilee with the thought, well, Jesus has died. He appeared to us, but who knows where this is going to end? Yeah, there was some mention about him meeting with us in Galilee, but hey, we got to make a living. We have to sustain our, our lives. We, we, was he in need of finances? Maybe that was a consideration. Maybe that was a concern. Was he just bored? Was he just looking to pass time? Lots of people bored and want to pass time, go fishing. Maybe he was going fishing for that purpose. We're not told. But we shouldn't be surprised that a fisherman goes fishing. After a night of fishing, the text tells us they had caught nothing. A futile night of labor at their nets. Nothing was caught. Probably auto reminded them of that previous incident we read about in Luke chapter 5, when also they had labored all night, they toiled all night, and they had caught nothing. But by morning, Jesus appears. He's on the shore, he's on the beach. And at first, he was not recognized by the disciples. That seems to happen a lot when the glorified body of Jesus appears. Mary didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. They're not, they don't see, they don't identify him. Maybe it was the distance. They were from the shore. Though we're told they weren't very far from the shore. It may just be something that's bound up in the reality of a glorified body that makes identification not instantaneously apparent. Jesus addresses them. That's how Mary came to recognize him, is when Jesus spoke to her and said, Mary. And then she responded, Rabbani, my teacher. But Jesus speaks to them. And he speaks to them in terms of endearment. He says, children, children, in verse 5. Chapter 21 of John's Gospel, verse 5. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Now I'm sure he knew. He, they had no fish. That they had labored all night and they had no fish in their net. But he does raise this question, expressing his interest, expressing his love, expressing his concern in this intimate way. And the response was, no. And then he tells them what to do. Again, they're not sure that it's Jesus. They don't know that it's Jesus. 
We didn't learn in Luke's gospel when Jesus said, cast your net on this side. That Peter said, we've caught nothing all night, Lord, but at your word, I will do it. Maybe it was that sense. This may well be the Lord, though we're not sure. He's not recognized just yet. But at his word, we will comply. At his word, we will obey. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, Jesus says. And so you will find some. And in response, they cast it. At his word, they obey. And now, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now, at this point, it ought to be apparent. They'd had their past experience of Luke 5, of what happens when Jesus says, put the net there, and the result? At that point, the, the haul was so great, the nets were breaking their nets were quite, not quite breaking at this point, but the awareness ought to have been present that this is the Lord. But it seems that the first one to recognize it is the one who is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, in the words of verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! Don't read that silently. That's an exclamation. It's the Lord! What else could explain this, first of all? Besides, we heard his voice. The sheep hear his voice. They follow him. At your word, we comply, and here is the result. It's clear this is the Lord. No sooner did Peter hear that it was the Lord. He didn't see it. He didn't understand it. But in John's words, I guess the dawning realization was, this is indeed the Lord. He puts on his outer garment. He was stripped from the work of the night. Exactly what state of... The pair he was in in terms of clothing, it's uncertain, it's uh, argued about, but he wasn't going to appear undressed or underdressed in the presence of the Lord. So he puts on his outer garment, and then he does what Peter does. He hurls himself into the sea. No reflection, no thought, is this the best way? He just goes, he just goes. That's Peter. Act first and think about it later. The other disciples are they're not prepared to follow him. They get this load of fish to take to the shore. And besides, they were not far from the land, we're told in verse 8. They were about 100 yards off. And it's hard to know. You wonder, did Peter get any advantage out of this, hurling himself into the sea, doing this impetuous act? We're just told when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, fishes laid out on it, and Jesus is talking to them. It doesn't say one got there first. Remember at the... At the uh, Tomb, it was Peter that outran, I'm sorry, John that outran Peter. Wasn't that the result? It was John that came first, so we're told. But now we're told who got, who got there first. Jesus is there first. Jesus is there first, and breakfast is already there. He didn't eat fish. Fish was laid out on it. And it's small fish that is mentioned. Again, the fish that they had, the 153, are said to be full of large fish. These were small fish. These were like hippers or some sort. This was something you'd have for breakfast. This was something that was more of a delicacy than just a, a large fish that may take a long while to, to cook and to prepare. These were fish that were uh, evidently the best fish. Jesus prepared them. Jesus laid it out on the charcoal fire and bread along with it. And then he tells them still, you got those fish that you brought, so let's add to the meal. Let's add to the meal something that you yourselves are brought. 
So he says, bring some of the fish that you have caught. And then Simon Peter went abroad, hauled in the net of fish, brought it ashore. And then somehow, someway, somewhere, someone decided, let's count them. Well, maybe that happened. I'm not sure. John tells us there was 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn, and Jesus has come and have breakfast. And all of them knew it was him. None of them asked, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. That's the narrative of Jesus' appearance to these disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Well, we've looked at the necessity for chapter 21. It's an epilogue. It's having told the story of Jesus. Now, John is indicating what the future holds. He's indicating what the work and mission and ministry of these disciples will be when he leaves them and goes to his Father. We've looked at the narrative. They're out on the sea, labored all night, caught nothing. Jesus appears, tells them what to do. They bring in this great quantity of fish. Peter hurls himself into the sea. They all come on the land. The fire is already set and the fish are being fried. And they add a bit to it, but they have breakfast together with Jesus. Now, this brings us to consider the number. The number. We've looked at this need for the, for the chapter. We've looked at the narrative of the chapter. Now, what does this matter of the 153 fish. I think this really does bring us, at least in my estimation, at something of the point of the story. Now, it doesn't add anything to the reality of a risen Christ. It doesn't add to the reality that he, was appearing, he appeared to them. It doesn't add to the reality of they joined him in breakfast and glorious communion with their Lord, had the enjoyment of his presence. But yet there is this matter of their ongoing work. In the upper room, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. He commissioned them to a work that wasn't centered on fishing on the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't a ministry that was centered upon getting financial gain in the fish trade, sustaining their lives through fishing. They were commissioned to a work that was centered upon the concerns of bringing forgiveness of sins to others. But that's not what they're doing at this point, is it? They're back fishing for fish. Spending a whole night on the sea. I don't think they wasted their time. I think the fact that they caught nothing in and of itself brought some lessons to learn by these disciples things that would be memorable as they spent a night a futile labor and then met the Lord who caused them to a life of fruitful labor. A life of abounding in labor that's abounds in great results. Because you see, the great labor of their lives was not to be to fish for fish at all. The original call of the Gospels, remember, on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus called them away from their nets, was for them to leave their boats, their fishing business, to follow him. That he would make them fishers of men. I believe when Jesus speaks to Peter in the next section, it says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He's not talking about, do you love me more than the other disciples? He's saying, do you love me more than these nets and fishing tackle and boats? 
and all the things you gain in your trade as a fisherman. What do you love most? You love me more than what you gain from your fishing trade. That's not a slight to fishermen. It's the fact that Peter had a different mission. Peter had a different work. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Now, a writer like John doesn't just happen upon a number like 153 uh, with no point. And I don't think he counted the number necessarily. He could have just said it was, as he said before, it's a great haul, a great quantity of fish. 153 has a specific meaning. Now, again, I want to say that biblical numerology has been given a bad name by the fact that there have been certain practitioners of the art who have spun wild theories, taught unbiblical themes, appealing to a system of numbers just to teach whatever they wanted. There was a guy not many years ago, some of you know his name, he was on the radio and he appealed to a system of numbers as one of the arguments in support of the idea, idea that he could tell us the day and the hour of our Lord's return. If not the hour, at least the day. I think it was May the 12th of 2000. And... What is it? I think it was the 11th. May the 11th of 2011? Maybe it was 2011. Whatever it was, he had it down to the day. He told us when Jesus would return. And there are people that left their jobs, left their businesses, left opportunities they had in the world to go out and wait for Jesus to return. And of course he didn't return. But yet he had a system of numbers that convinced people that he knew. Now the Bible clearly discourages such things. The Bible tells us of that day and hour that no, no man knows. So anybody that's using numbers or a number system to tell us something the Bible clearly tells us you can't know is misusing that number. But you see, misusing ideas of numerology doesn't preclude a wise and a discerning use. Now, the number 153 is something that's called a triangular number. I didn't know about this until I read about it. You know what a triangular number is? You can actually do this on a piece of paper, and you can make numbers of triangles of this line here, line there a little bit deeper, until it makes a triangle. And then you count the little dots in the middle. And you go 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5. And you come up with a number that's a triangular number of a certain number. 153 has a triangular number of 17. In other words, if you take 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, put it on your computer and you'll see this works. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, all the way to 17. You know what it, is? You know what it adds up to? It adds up to 153. Try it out. You'll see. It's 153. So 153 is a triangular number of 17. Keep that in your minds. Now turn to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 is Ezekiel's account of the vision he had of this temple, of this temple in which the glory of the God of Israel had returned. Chapter 43 of Ezekiel, God's glory comes back to his temple. And now in the words of chapter 47 of Ezekiel, you see something of this temple and what occurs from it. Now it's impossible, it's I think important to understand or perhaps to remember that Jesus identified himself with imagery of temple. Remember chapter 2 of John's Gospel? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us, he wasn't talking about the temple building, he was talking about the temple of his body. 
He was talking about his resurrection from the dead. But you see, Jesus using temple to describe his body is in essence to declare what John 1 tells us, that he was that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That Jesus is the incarnation of Israel's God. And a temple is a place where God's presence is made manifest. God descended upon the tabernacle in the wilderness, descended upon Solomon's temple with the glory cloud. He filled the place with his presence. Chapter 43, the presence of God returns to this temple. Jesus declares himself, his body, to be the temple of God. Why? Because in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Where is God to be found in the world? Out in Salt Lake City at the Mormon tabernacle? Well, no. At the Vatican in Rome? No. In the Crystal Cathedral? I think that's being torn down anyway. No, none of these places. Not St. Patrick's Cathedral. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. But where does he dwell? He dwells bodily in Jesus. He is the temple. And we're a temple as well as we're living stones built up to be a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices unto God through Christ. He is the temple and in him we're built up to be God's own dwelling place. God dwells in Christ and he dwells in his people who trust Christ, believe in Christ, and come to Christ. Well, what happens in this visionary temple? Well, water begins to flow from beneath the temple in chapter 47 and verse 1. Water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced the east and this water flowed down below the south end. And flowing down water is living water. It's drinkable water. It's not stagnant. It's living. Jesus said, If any man thirsts, let him come to me. He that believes in me out of his belly, not his, our belly, his belly, out of his side flowed water and blood. Out of his person there comes living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is you were talking to, he said to the woman at the well, you would have asked and I would have given you living water. Jesus is the source of this living water. He's the temple from which proceeds living water. you got a man with a measure, measure line and he's measuring it, a thousand cubits, and it's ankle deep, another one that's knee deep, then it's waist deep, and then you can swim in it. It's a torrent of water, deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? God's temple is not just going to be on Mount Sinai, on Mount Zion. God's temple is going to fill the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's knowledge will come to the world through the gospel, through the preaching of the message of Christ. So the picture of the visionary temple is the picture of the spread of the gospel through the world. God's presence in Christ is in his people through the Spirit. And fills the world as the gospel goes forward into the world. You find that this river of living water has trees on each side. And then it has fishermen in the words of verse 10. Fishermen stand by the sea. From Engedi to Enigalim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets
Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Now I know you're going to think I'm weird to say this, but say it I must, because say it, it's true. Hebrew words have numeric values. Names have numeric values. We saw that at Christmas time with the number 14 and the name of David. David is 14. John and Matthew's Gospel speaks of 14 generations to David. Right? It speaks of 14 generations of Davidic kings. It speaks of 14 generations with no Davidic king after the kingdom of David fell. And then the next king comes who is Jesus. It's David's genealogy because David's numerically is 14. I didn't make this up. It's true. It's true. Dalit Vav Dalit equals 14. You got two cities here, or two places here, two locations that are mentioned, in Gedi and Enigalim. And folks, I'm just going to tell you, it has a numerical value. And you know what the numeric value is? In Gedi is the number 17. Enigalim is the number 153. I didn't put it there. It's there. 153, and it's a triangular number 17. And right here, you have that imagery. John is calling attention to Ezekiel 47. He's drawing attention to the fact that the work of God's people in the New Covenant is a work of fishing, not for fish, but for men. And of the fish which, are, which, which the nets are spread is said to be of very many kinds. And that's the very language that's used in Matthew 13 about the parable of the dragnet. It brings in fish of every kind. You have the ingathering of the Gentiles. The ingathering of the nations into the people of God. And it gives the picture of the leaves not withering their fruit not failing, bearing fresh fruit every month, because the water for, for them flows to, from the sanctuary. Who's the sanctuary? Jesus. Living water flows from Him. Where does it flow? To all the earth. What does it do? It brings in disciples of every kind. I told you I was excited about 153. That's <laughs> why. That's why. And the result is fruit that leads to the healing of the nations. Now, if you didn't know that, you could read John 21 very acceptably. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't fall down. You, didn't, you don't have to know the numerical values, but do you see the benefit of knowing them? See the benefit of making the connection that I think John wants us to make between John 21 and Ezekiel 47? It just fills the whole picture with a sense of what the future work of these men on the Sea of Galilee who had left, who had gone fishing for fish. Their true work was from Jesus as the source, bringing the blessing of his gospel to the world. That's why it's important that Simon had to consider what, is, what does he love most? What is his principle of? Is it his fishing trade? Or is it the work that Jesus called him to do? But again, not everybody's called to be fishers of men. 
not everybody's called to leave their nets. Fishermen can still have a trade in the fishing business and do whatever it is God's called you to in life to his glory. But the point is, those that are called to the specific work of an apostle, of the specific work that Peter and John and Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John were called to do, there had to be this wholehearted, whole-souled commitment to that work, nothing else intervening. And that work would be a work that's fruitful. That work would be a work that would bear fruit to the glory of God. There'd be a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe that ultimately would be brought into the family of God through what? Through the witness of the disciples. Through the witness of the apostles. The apostolic witness that we have in Scripture, that we have in the Gospel. That these men and their generation left to us today this is the future work that they would do. This is what the Gospel of John is now telling us, having told us about Jesus, having told us about His life, what He's achieved and what He has accomplished. Now says, here's the fruit of it all. Here's the fruit of it all going forward in chapter 21. This is the mission of these apostles and what they would do in the world. And it's a mission that ought to fill our hearts with joy in order to fill our hearts with gladness. Well, as we conclude, a couple of lessons that really come out from the text clearly to be seen. First of all, apart from Jesus, nothing is done. Apart from Jesus, nothing is done. They labored the whole night looking to, looking to find a fish. They couldn't come up with a minnow. <laughs> nothing, nothing of good came. And Jesus said, put down your nets there. What happened? Fish were brought in in an abundant number. And Jesus said in chapter 15, I am the true vine. My father is the husband. And every man, every branch in me bears fruit. We must abide in the vine. We must abide in Christ. We must draw our strength from Him, our wisdom from Him, our resources from Him. He is the source of all of our good. He's the sanctuary from which the living water flows. Look to Him. Live for Him. Be rooted and grounded in Him. He's the source of all blessing. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy praise. Dreams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. He's the source of all blessings. Look to him. Abide in him. Be strong in him. Cleave to him. And then I think the passage also tells us what he says, do. What he commands, obey. Again, they labored for nothing. Jesus said, here's how you do it. Put the net out on the right side. And results commence. So much of our weakness has to do with our compromise. We compromise with his words. We think it's okay, we just give a partial adherence, a partial obedience, a partial hearing to his words. Often like Peter, we have a better idea. But his command brings the blessing, as he's the source of all the blessings. And it's upon his grace, upon his provisions, we must ever rely. And, and then we live and we labor with the confidence it's not in vain. We live and labor with the confidence that we're not on a fool's errand. 
We're not called to do something that at the end of the day we're going to sit on our, we're going to lie on our deathbed and say, man, I, I regret loving Christ. I regret serving Christ. I regret worshiping Christ. Now, you'll have lots of regrets you didn't worship Him sufficiently. You'll have lots of regrets you didn't serve Him better. But nobody's going to be on their deathbed saying, Lord, I'm leaving this world and I just wish I had more of the world. No, you wish you had more of Him. So let's live for Him. Let's labor for Him. Let's look to Him. Let's draw from Him. Let's make Him to be our all in all. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can meet in Your presence. We're thankful we can look into Your Word. We're thankful for the riches we find in Holy Scripture. We're thankful for the riches of blessing and provision and grace that we find in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray to be a people who hold fast to Him. We can relinquish a great many things in this world and be none the worse for it, but we cannot relinquish Jesus. So help us to hold Him fast and help us to live for Him with wholeness of heart and fullness of purpose. We ask You to hear our prayers. We ask You to bless Your people as we come to You in Jesus' name. Amen.